WTBN Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Sometimes Christians can be so strongly opinionated and unbending on subjects not found in the Bible that we give the impression that our narrowness is the same thing as a stubborn, hardened dogmatism in which we insist that we're right about everything. And there are Christians like that. They can't be wrong. They know it all. Folks, we don't want to be known as opinionated know-it-alls. The story was told some years ago of a pastor who found the roads blocked one Sunday morning and was forced to skate on the river to get to church, which he did. When he arrived, the elders of the church were horrified that their preacher had skated on the Lord's Day. After the service, they held a meeting where the pastor explained that it was either skate to church or not go at all. Finally, one elder asked, Did you enjoy it? When the preacher answered, No, the board decided it was all right. Welcome to Verse by Verse with pastor-teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more than 27 years, Pastor Steve has been delivering expository or verse-by-verse messages, and these daily broadcasts are an extension of that teaching ministry. I don't know if the story of the ice skating pastor is true or not, but it does illustrate the lengths that some people will go to in setting out codes of behavior beyond those commanded in the Bible. The path to the kingdom of heaven is a narrow one, and there is only one gate available to us, and it is not very wide or popular. As Pastor Steve nears the conclusion of this series from the Sermon on the Mount, let us be careful that our narrow-minded view of salvation does not turn us into a 21st century Pharisee. Our text is Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. But if you have your Bible ready, please turn to Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Here is Pastor Steve to continue the message that he began on the last verse by verse. In fact, before anyone became a disciple of his, the Lord made sure they understood the cost involved. Notice, let's go back to that passage I read before, Luke chapter 14. Notice what Jesus had to say to those in a crowd of people who were traveling with him, but but many in that crowd had not yet committed themselves to being true disciples. Luke chapter 14, we just read this before. It says, verse 25, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, so these were not all believers, these were not all disciples, Uh, lots of people had attached themselves to Jesus, and they were following him, some who wanted to be healed, others who, who liked seeing the miracles, some who were intrigued by this rabbi from Galilee, but Jesus understood that not every one of them had really become his disciple. And so, he turned and he said to them, verse 26, Now, this ought to shock people. He said, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let me just clarify that. The Lord never commands us to hate our family. You have to understand this in the context that that this is by way of comparison. What he's saying is, your devotion for me and your love and commitment to me has to be so deep and so right and so pure that, that by comparison, it makes your love for your family seem like hatred. So understand, I wouldn't want anyone thinking that Jesus said you got to hate your family. In fact, when you become a believer, you love your family even, even more than you ever did. 
There's a depth of love there. So, so understand, he's just saying that by comparison, your love for your family will seem like hatred when you compare it to your love for me. In other words, he's saying that I'm the priority. I'm the priority. I must come first in everything. He goes on to say, verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Carrying a cross meant that you're on the way to, to die. Self-denial, more than self-denial. I'm, I'm ready to, to abandon everything for you. And then he explains the cost of being a disciple. And he's, this is exactly what he's doing. He's saying, this is the cost. Count the cost first before you make a decision. Know what you're getting into. I mean, the Lord is filled with integrity to tell f- folks this, and we ought to also. He said in verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish all who observe it, begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and was not able to, to finish. He's saying in, in the context of a businessman, what kind of a businessman would set out on a venture without seeing if he had enough money and materials to complete it. We'd laugh at somebody like that. So Jesus said, and so you must count the cost of being my disciple. You must count the cost. He goes on to speak about a a king who sets out to meet another king in battle, verse 31. He said, doesn't, won't this king first sit down and consider if his 10,000 men that he has to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 is enough? I mean, it would be silly to go to battle and not know if you, if you were strong enough, do you have a chance to win? And then he says in verse 33, so then none of you, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, in saying this, the Lord is not saying you, you have to sell everything you have first and then follow me. He did say that to the rich young ruler, but that's not the thought here. He's not saying that you have to give up your house and your cars and and uh, all your clothes, your nice clothing to follow me. No, let me, let me explain it by quoting from one Bible teacher. He said, they were permitted to retain no privileges and make no demands. They were to safeguard no cherished sins, treasure no earthly possessions, and cling to no secret self-indulgences. Their commitment to him must be without reservation. In other words, he's talking about total surrender. You've got to surrender your life to me. That's, that's what it costs to be a disciple. That's what it costs to be a disciple. So the cost of following Christ means giving what? Everything. And Jesus wants them to know right up front what was involved. In the way he put it in Matthew 7, it's a narrow way of life. You see, the reason Jesus made sure that people understood the cost of discipleship before coming to him is that his view of salvation wasn't just that you were saved from hell. That's, that's really what a lot of Christians think. If you ask them, about, if you say, are you saved? All they think about is, I'm going to heaven, I'm saved from hell. And while that's part of salvation, that's not all of it. And that's not how Jesus viewed salvation. He came not only to save us from hell, but he came to transform us from a wicked people into a holy people, zealous for good works. He died on the cross not only to forgive us of our sins, but to transform us into holy people. And that's a progressive work until we get to glory and it's perfected. Here's how the Apostle Paul explained the purpose of Christ's death in his letter to Titus. He wrote, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Folks, that's why we're saved, to be a zealous people for his own possession, not just to to have our sins forgiven and know we're going to go to heaven. So in telling us that the narrow gate 
leads to a narrow road, Jesus is informing us that the Christian life does impose boundaries on us. There are restrictions on what we believe and what we love and how we behave. This life is confining. This life is confining. It sets limitations on us. In contrast to the broad way of life in which unbelievers are on, they're free to do and think and believe and act any way they want. Those who follow Christ are not like that. We're on a very narrow road in which our thoughts, our affections, our behavior, our actions, all of it have restrictions placed upon us. Restrictions, note this, by the dictates of the Word of God. We're as narrow as the Word of God tells us to be narrow. Here's how the psalmist put it in Psalm 1. He said, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What the psalmist is telling us is that this narrow way of life is God's way of living. Just living by the word of God, no longer following the dictates of our own thoughts or the ways of the world. We don't follow their counsel. Now we look to God's word for direction and guidance and beliefs and behavior and attitudes and actions. And we are always being transformed by the narrowness of the word of God. Now at this point, I want to stop and I want to clarify what I think is a very important issue. One that that needs to be said and we need to address it. And the issue is this. We need to be careful that we never confuse our strong personal opinions with the narrowness of God's word. And let me explain. See, we live in a world that that prides itself on being open-minded and tolerant, right? More so than ever before. Intolerance is out, tolerance is in. And therefore, it is uh, very common for unbelievers to be extremely derogatory in referring to Christians as just narrow, closed-minded people. But we need to be careful that the narrowness that they're referring to is the same narrowness of life that Jesus is referring to. And not the narrowness, note this, of an inflexible, rigid legalism. A narrowness that is dogmatic about issues that the Bible simply doesn't directly address. See, sometimes Christians can be so strongly opinionated and unbending on subjects not found in the Bible that we give the impression that our narrowness is, is the same thing as a stubborn, hardened, just dogmatism, dogmatism in which we insist that we're right about everything. And there are, there are Christians like that. They can't be wrong. They know it all. Folks, we don't want to be known as opinionated know-it-alls. That's not the narrowness that Jesus is talking about. Kent Hughes gives us a, an just a a stunning and excellent example of this kind of stubborn, dogmatic narrowness in a story he tells of a certain church bishop who in the year 1870 sharply disagreed with another church leader, a denominational leader. And this other denominational leader had said that in 50 years it might be possible for men to fly in the air like birds. Remember, he said this in 1870. The bishop took exception to this. In fact, Uh, He considered this a scandalous statement, and he replied to this other church leader, flight is strictly reserved for the angels, and I beg you not to repeat your suggestion, lest you be guilty of blasphemy. Now, the irony of this story, and the interesting thing about this incident, is that the bishop who made this dogmatic remark was Bishop Wright, whose sons Orville and Wilbur 
would be the first to fly an airplane 33 years later. But this man was dogmatic. This man accused the other man of being close to blasphemy. You see that dogmatism, that inflexible stubbornness that insists that that their opinion is right. See, if we're going to be tagged as narrow-minded people, let's be sure we're known for being as narrow as the Bible is and not for our dogmatism and sometimes very ignorant personal opinions. It just makes us look like uninformed, pious ignoramuses. It's all right to say, I don't know. It's all right to say, I'm not sure about a political issue. I don't know. I don't don't know about this current event. I haven't formed an opinion. It's all right to say that. You don't don't want to come across like a know-it-all. We want to be humble followers of Christ and as narrow as the Scripture is. It's this type of silly dogmatism that that was exactly the kind of narrowness that the Pharisees of Christ's day were, were noted for. They were rigid legalists who came up with their own set of religious rules for living. In fact, that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, to say, here's the Pharisees' view of righteousness. It's legalism. It's wrong. Here's my standard of righteousness. These men were, were legalists, dogmatic. Anybody who disagreed with them was, was on their way to hell. And really, what they did, they, they set up their own religious rules for living, and they were scrupulous and painstakingly meticulous in following them. And in doing so, they failed to walk down the narrow road of genuine righteousness. Now, Christ is calling us to this narrow road of genuine righteousness, not living by our own opinions, but living by the word of God. To the narrow way that Christ was referring to in Matthew 7 is really the narrow teaching of the sermon he just gave, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, the Lord is just telling his disciples about kingdom living in a sinful world. Now he turns to the unbelievers in the crowd and he says, if you want to become my disciple, this is the narrow kind of way that you must live. This is the narrow life that I'm talking about. This way of life is the way of of true inner righteousness that deals with sins in the heart, sins in the mind, as well as sins of behavior. This is the narrowness of life that isn't content to do the right actions only, but seeks to live by the very high standards of the right inner attitudes and the right inner motivations. And this is the narrowness that isn't content to refrain just from physical murder. On this narrow road, you have to also deal with the sins of of being angry. This is the narrowness of life that isn't content to refrain from physical adultery alone. On this narrow road, you must also seek moral purity in your thought life. This is the narrowness that keeps its word, yields its right to others, loves its enemies, humbly obeys God in private without seeking man's approval, seeks treasures in heaven rather than on earth, and treats others in the same way that that they want to be treated. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And folks, if we're going to be known as narrow people, and we should be known as narrow people, let's be known for this type of narrowness. Not the other. Not pharisaical narrowness. That's legalism. That's stubbornness. That's dogmatism where we ought not to be dogmatic. And so Jesus has given us so far two truths about our salvation. Number one, entering salvation is like going through a very narrow gate. Secondly, he tells us that following him means a very narrow way of life. And I urge you to live that way. I urge you as we begin to wind down our study of the Sermon on the Mount that to be committed to living like this. And I know it's unpleasant when people call us narrow. Nobody wants to be thought of like that. But we follow our master who was thought of just like that. 
We can do no other. The third key truth about salvation that Jesus taught is the narrow road is the road, he said, that leads to life. The narrow road is the road that leads to life. Verse 14 goes on to say, for the gate is small, the way is narrow, that leads to life. Now, in the previous verse, Jesus said that the broad way leads to destruction. Now he tells us that the narrow way leads to life. So there's a contrast, destruction and life. But what exactly does the Lord mean by life? This is not a reference to physical life. It's a reference to spiritual life. You see, the Bible teaches very clearly that due to our sinful natures, we are all born into this world dead spiritually dead we had physical life obviously or else we wouldn't come into this world but we were spiritually dead that is to say that apart from from faith in christ we have we we have none of god's life within us we were like we were like living corpses unresponsive to god that's why we hated him we were disinterested in him unresponsive to him that's why we were blind. There, there's no, there was no communication with us and God. You may have said prayers, but they got no higher than the ceiling. There was no fellowship between you and God because God is holy. You can't fellowship with spiritually dead people. Paul wrote to the Ephesians about this. And this is very important to understand. Those who, those who don't accept the doctrine of God's sovereignty in election really don't understand the depravity of man. Because if you don't understand that man is depraved, you'll think that man in and of his, himself can figure it all out and that he has the power to bring life to himself. Dead people can't repent. Dead people can't do anything spiritually. They must be made alive by the Lord. And, and right here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, it's in the past tense, in which he says, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, in indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This, this is a picture of fallen man without Christ. This is the way we all were at one time, we were dead in sins and trespasses. We followed the course of this world. We followed Satan, even if we didn't believe personally in him. We did whatever we thought was right. We had no response to God because we were dead, dead. Verse four, he turns a corner. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, notice this, God who is rich in mercy has great love for his people. It says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul adds, by grace, you've been saved. This is the, the miraculous, mysterious regeneration that comes to those that are saved. We were dead. God worked in our hearts. He regenerated. The word regeneration simply means that God gives you life. It's the same concept of being born again. That's what it means, by the way, to be born again. It means that God places his life within you. It's, it's a divine nature you get. It's the life of God in you. That's why Christianity is not, it's not reformation. It isn't that we clean up the outside. That's what the Pharisees did. Christianity is transformation. It starts with the life of God in us and he changes our hearts and he, as he gives us our life, now we want to obey him and we have different values and different ambitions and a different way of looking at things and now we long to do what's right even as we still struggle with our, our sin because that sin wasn't eradicated. We still have it. We struggle with it. And so 
And so Jesus is telling us that this narrow gate opens up to a narrow way of life which leads to life itself. The scripture often refers to this this life as eternal or everlasting life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's why we're all dead. We're all sinners. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. His life within us is a gift that comes only through faith in Christ. Now the expression eternal life is a favorite expression used that was used by Jesus, especially you read this throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus many times spoke about eternal or everlasting life. For example, John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John five twenty-four. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And then in John 10, John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because they have eternal life, Jesus said they'll never perish. They have life eternal. What a promise, eternal life for free. But there is only one way to get it. And that is to turn from relying on ourselves and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. The entrance to heaven is a narrow gate and so is the path leading to that gate. Jesus said that not many find it, and following Him will lead us down a narrow path for the rest of our lives, a path that will sometimes put us in painful situations. But the rewards in this life, and especially the life to come, far surpass the present cost. The Apostle Paul said, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Pastor Steve Kreloff will conclude this message from the Sermon on the Mount in our next verse-by-verse. It has been a pleasure having you in class with us, and I hope you can come back next time. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. He has been serving there since 1981, and these Bible classes of the air are produced by Verse-by-Verse Ministries. We are grateful for the listener support that helps keep these classes on the air. If you are ever in the Clearwater area on a Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for worship. Lakeside is located at 1893 Sunset Point Road. That's midway between US 19 and the beaches. Today's class was the middle of a three-part message based on Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you would like to hear the entire message, you can order a cassette tape or an audio CD. To get yours, please call us at 727-441-1714. Leave your name and a number, and we'll return your call during weekday office hours so that you can place your order. Our number again is 727-441-1714. To listen to our program on the web, please point your browser to versebyverseradio.org. 
we have today's lesson and many of Pastor Steve's previous classes available. We also offer a free newsletter and an equally free podcasting service. The website again is versebyverseradio.org. We just heard Pastor Steve quote several verses in which Jesus promised eternal life to those who will believe in Him. But what exactly does Jesus mean by eternal life? It might at first seem that He was talking only about how long His followers would live. But as we will see in the next verse by verse, what Jesus offers is both quantity and quality of life. Please join us for the next verse by verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's verse. We're here to give you strength between 